1: because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
0: From Cafe, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
2: When you make politics the center of your life, you run the risk of making politics and therefore politicians your gods and I'm a fairly serious monotheist. You know, there are things that I believe one should worship, and there are things that one should not.
0: That's Jeffrey Goldberg. He's the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic magazine. Goldberg's been busy lately. In addition to his editing duties, he continues to write major stories, including a piece in September about President Trump calling Americans who died in combat suckers and losers and also a recent sit-down with President Obama. Goldberg joins me to discuss the state of journalism, the psychology of Donald Trump, and our shared love for Bruce Springsteen. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Calvin in Brooklyn, who writes, What did you make of Bill Barr's resignation? What was going on with his letter? So those of you who listen to the Cafe Insider podcast with me and Ann Milgram know that we spent quite a bit of time breaking down Bill Barr's resignation, talking about the letter. I think a lot of it was even in the sample that was put in the Stay Tuned feed. You'll recall that we're not quite sure, because it's impossible to know, if Bill Barr really resigned of his own accord or if he was fired. One thing we didn't mention in our conversation yesterday was more recent reporting that suggests that the resignation was sort of delicately orchestrated, or negotiated by the White House counsel. If that reporting is true, it seems like it was a mix of both things. A desire on the part of the president for Bill Barr to leave, and Bill Barr's acquiescence in that desire. Neither Ann nor I really had the sense that the theory that some people have been propounding is correct. That is, that Bill Barr doesn't want to be a part of nasty stuff that's coming down the pike, including many more pardons, and possibly a self-pardon by President Trump of himself. Given how much Bill Barr has seemed to be capable of stooping in the prior years of his service as attorney general, both with respect to the Mueller report and interfering with the Roger Stone case and the Michael Flynn case, I don't think it was a sudden attack of conscience that caused him to go at this time. But there's one other possibility that Ann and I didn't really delve into. And I was reminded of some things that I thought and said when Jeff Sessions was the attorney general. You'll recall the hapless Jeff Sessions, who did a lot of things that people might not agree with and a lot of things that were pretty terrible, including having an intentional policy for deterrence of separating children from their parents at the border. But you'll remember, the one thing that he did that was above board and ethical, by all accounts, was listening to the career advice of ethics lawyers at the Justice Department about whether or not he should recuse himself from the Russia probe. He was told that he should, and he abided by that recommendation. And for that sin, which wasn't really a sin, President Trump excoriated him, debased him, mocked him, humiliated him almost on a daily basis. And I remember saying to one or more guests at the time, you know, if you had a job and a significant job at that, an important job in which your boss, whether he was the president of the United States or not, openly mocked you and humiliated you on a regular basis, how long would you come to work? I think I asked this question of Ben Wittes once upon a time when it came to Jeff Sessions. And his answer was the same as mine. You'd stop coming to work and you'd quit the job because you have some self-respect. And so I never knew what to make of the fact that Jeff Sessions just took that abuse Day after day after day. And even knowing that he was going to be ignominiously fired, probably after the 2018 election, he continued to take the abuse. And so it may be that while Bill Barr, I think, was a worse attorney general materially and on a policy basis than Jeff Sessions in various ways that we've documented on this show and on the Cafe Insider, that maybe part of him has some self-respect and was thinking to himself, you know what? The president's going to mock me. The president's going to accuse me of not being a good attorney general. I don't need that in my life. I'm old enough. It's my second tour of duty. I'm out. It still is odd to leave just a few weeks before the end of the administration, but maybe that's what he was thinking. As for what was going on with his letter, I just wanna echo one thing that Ann said yesterday that I've been thinking about a lot since. Nowhere in that letter, nowhere, when he's essentially telling the president of the United States that he's stepping down from his job, he spends paragraph after paragraph being obsequious, flattering the president, like he's some kind of dear leader, and doesn't do even a pro forma, giving of respect and thanks and showing gratitude to the rank-and-file people in the Justice Department who make the Justice Department great. So I don't know all the reasons, I don't know all the considerations that went into Bill Barr's decision, if it was his decision, but I said it on Twitter and I'll say it again. Good riddance. This question comes in an email from Christina from San Antonio. Dear Preet, your retweet on Dr. Jill Biden and the Wall Street Journal op-ed about her doctorate made me think about how women in the spotlight continue to be treated by the media. What was your reaction to the Wall Street Journal publishing the op-ed? So this is not something I intended to get into. And for those of you who are not familiar with the quote-unquote controversy, there's a very stupid and overwrought and silly op-ed in the Wall Street Journal written by an ordinary guy named Joseph Epstein entitled, Is There a Doctor in the White House? Not If You Need an MD. He seems very miffed and upset and rankled by the idea that the incoming first lady, Jill Biden, goes by Dr. Dr. Jill Biden because she has... A doctorate in education. And his view seems to be that if you're not a medical doctor and you can't deliver a baby or perform surgery, then you should do away with the doctor. And that's, you know, a view that people have. But in my view, it was an unnecessarily childish, and the view of a lot of people, an unnecessarily childish and, by the way, poorly written op-ed that begins like this. Madam First Lady. First mistake, by the way, it's Madam First Lady. No E required. Mrs. Biden, Jill, kiddo, calls her kiddo, A bit of advice on what may seem like a small, but I think is a not unimportant matter. Can we pause again for a second to comment on the atrocious writing represented by this phrase? A small, but I think is a not unimportant matter. Wow. That made it to the pages of the Wall Street Journal. He writes, any chance you might drop the doctor before your name? Dr. Jill Biden sounds and feels fraudulent, not to say a touch comic. Your degree is, I believe, an EDD, a doctor of education, earned at the University of Delaware through a dissertation with the unpromising title Student Retention at the Community College Level, Meeting Students' Needs. A wise man once said that no one should call himself doctor unless he has delivered a child. Think about it, Dr. Jill, and forthwith, drop the doc. If I may repeat again, this is terrible writing, in need of an editor, unnecessarily condescending, and kind of a stupid topic. But, you no, know, who cares? When the question is asked, how do I feel about the Wall Street Journal publishing it? I think the Wall Street Journal op-ed page has dishonored itself before with trivia and nonsense. But it's a free country. They have a certain perspective, and they have every right to publish it, and people have every right to criticize it. And a lot of people did. And I might not have mentioned it, but for two things. One is that the editorial page editor, Paul Gigo, took to the pages himself in earnest defense of the Wall Street Journal's right to publish that silly and stupid op-ed. And then another is a study I want to bring to your attention. So, Paul Gigaud takes to the pages of the Wall Street Journal, seemingly annoyed and upset that people dared to criticize Mr. Epstein's op-ed. Paul Gigo writes in defense, quote, The complaints began as a trickle, but became a torrent after the Biden media team elevated Mr. Epstein's work in what was clearly a political strategy. I don't know about that. It can also be the case that many, many people around the country, when they came upon the piece by Mr. Epstein, simultaneously and independently thought it was overwrought, silly, and stupid. I don't know that political strategy is necessary for people to draw that conclusion. He gives maybe progressives and Democrats a bit too much credit. Mr. Gigo also writes, and this is kind of comical to me, quote, many readers said Mr. Epstein's use of kiddo is demeaning, but then Joe Biden is also fond of that locution. So I guess if I understand this correctly, it is okay for someone who's a complete stranger to use the same term of endearment or nickname that one's spouse of decades uses for that person. I don't think it works that way. Paul Gigo also seems to suggest in defense of Mr. Epstein that he was mocking men and women equally. Quote, Mr. Epstein's point applies to men and women, and his piece also mocked men for their honorary degrees. Come back to that in a second. Gigo ends his piece by saying, if you disagree with Mr. Epstein, fair enough. Write a letter or shout your objections on Twitter, which is exactly what people did. And going back to this issue of whether or not Epstein is sexist, sometimes it's good to look at data. And my friend and former podcast guest, Adam Grant, who is a brilliant organizational psychologist at Wharton, went on Twitter and also actually texted me about a study that I wanted to bring to your attention. And that's why I'm talking about this. Because sometimes these ways we have of talking about things, we don't really appreciate and understand and are not cognizant of the fact that we're being sexist. And so Adam Grant posted on Twitter a reference to a study of 300 or more introductions of people who were presenting at events all of whom had MDs or PhDs. And the study found that women's qualifications were far less likely to be mentioned by men. Men introduced 72% of men as doctor, but only 49% of women as doctor. Women, on the other hand, were more even-handed. Women introduced speakers as doctor regardless of gender. And as Adam Grant says in his tweet, respecting women shouldn't be this hard. That goes for Paul Giguot, that goes for Mr. Epstein, And that goes for the Wall Street Journal op-ed page as well. It's time for a short break. Stay tuned.
1: Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, An original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen.
0: Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform And it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com slash tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. Jeffrey Goldberg is my guest this week. He's the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic Magazine. Today, we talk about the role of the Atlantic in the modern media environment and the state of American diplomacy in the Middle East at the dawn of the Biden presidency. Jeff Goldberg, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. You know, I wasn't going to mention this, but sometimes in the chit chat before we hit the record button, I get the idea for a question. And before we get to the magazine and your writing and your editing and everything else, could you explain to the public what you had for breakfast?
2: Yes, I can. I had leftover Thai fried rice
0: because that was from dinner last night.
2: Yeah, which is pretty good because it's not from dinner four nights ago.
0: We'd be having that for lunch. Probably. How much did yeah. you get? How much? How much did you buy? How many meals is this going to go for?
2: I actually try to eat small meals, so you know, one of those you do big... intermittent eating. Intermittent eating. Yeah, two hundred calories every three hours or whatever the thing is. But um, I uh, it's one of those big, you know, round black tubs of, you know, whatever, you, you know, rice. People didn't know that we've converted this to a food show. <laughs> is this what you do on your show? I've listened nutrition. a little bit, but I don't, no, I don't remember. No, this is not usually what
0: we do. But, I don't remember but you the mentioned cooking it. show. No, I did, it's true. So let's talk about some of your writing. And I don't know if you get asked about this a lot, but one of your great works of all time, and I don't know if you'll guess which article I'm gonna ask about. And I will later ask about the Suckers and Losers article. But the one I want to begin with is a great piece you did back in 2012. Can you guess the piece? Not at all.
2: Not at all. I have a very bad short and long-term memory, and also medium. That's helpful for
0: reporting. <laughs> I write everything down. I write everything down. It is the piece you wrote in 2012, in the fall of 2012, a seminal piece, on the relationship, on the unrequited love between Christopher Christie yes. and the boss, Bruce Springsteen. Because, And we'll get into this. You are a huge Bruce Springsteen fan as I am. And that article was especially special to me in the fall of 2012, where you essentially write how Christie is one of the greatest Bruce Springsteen fans of all time. And he was then the governor of New Jersey. And Bruce Springsteen didn't so much as acknowledge him, didn't like him, disparaged him. And Christie would still sort of in a forlorn way, go to every concert, sing along to every song. And he got no attention from Bruce. And the reason it's special to me, and I got to gloat a little bit, I was the U.S. attorney at the time, and earlier that year, in the winter of 2012, I went to a concert in which—and I like to brag about this—Bruce Brinkson gave me a shout-out from mm. the stage. This mm. is And here was the governor of the Garden State himself being shunned by Bruce. How fun was that article to write? Well, I got to see Chris Christie dance, in Newark. So, in other words, not fun.
2: Not everybody. <laughs> not everybody gets to see. Uh, yeah, I went to a I went to a concert with him, and uh, I got to watch him. He was sitting right in front of me. I was sitting right behind him, you know. And we were there, and he he danced like "Hungry Hearts." Maybe I don't remember what he was dancing to, but it was it was memorable. Um, you know, that was at a point when I had. Um, let's say more sympathy for Chris Christie than I have today. I mean, I still find him to be a fascinating person uh, and obviously a great deal of fun in a lot of ways, but I, I question some of his life choices over the past four years. Uh, But no, it was, it was interesting because, I mean, I had a very fun time with him. I went down to Trenton one snowy day and we sat in his office and four hours, we had, I think what was, what used to be known as a platter party. Um, we would, uh, you know, we would just spin, he would just play, we would play Bruce songs. Um, maybe that's not what Platter Party is. Anyway, I, I have a I have a vague recollection that's what it means. But um, we would just play songs and talk about Bruce and, and argue about it. And um, that's a lot of fun for someone from my demographic, my Outer Borough, <laughs> you know, Outer Borough, Bridge and Tunnel demographic. But the interesting thing about, and you'll, 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 recognize this. The interesting thing about Christie and a lot of conservative-leaning Bruce fans is that they perform this mental trick where they discount entirely Bruce's politics as meaningless and just enjoy the music. But I find it very hard to separate out Bruce's music from Bruce's Worldview, or his understanding of America and the American dream, and so on, and and so that that became uh, at, at first an interesting argument with Christie, and then kind of a boring argument because uh,
0: you can't deny it. Yeah, yeah. You quote him as saying uh, Christie saying, "You know, I compartmentalize," and I wonder yeah, sometimes well, th- this conservative and, and progressive divide in the country. It must be a little bit hard to be a conservative if you like music because you don't have a lot of bands, yeah, who are you know copacetic with your worldview if you're a conservative and you yeah and who do and you have who do you actually have well like, you have um, you have um scott Bayo, although he doesn't sing mm. so,
2: <laughs> that's, so that's that makes problem. it hard to be in a band yeah
0: uh lee greenwood
2: lee greenwood lee greenwood i like that song except it has like this annoying grammatical tick in it do you know this i'm proud i think to be i've written American. about this I'm proud to be an American where at least I, you know, and, and it's like, it should be, I'm proud to be an American because at least I know I'm free. I just, I, I tend to copy edit songs. It's, it's another, it's, a, it's an endearing tick. You should, um, you should
0: lay off the Thai fried rice, perhaps. Maybe, <laughs> maybe that's a little too much. Carbs yeah. I'm, I'm
2: sure that it, I'm sure it's the root cause of that. What's, what's that uh, old
0: song, um, Neil Young, there ain't no one for to give me no name. That, that always bothered me. <laughs> like what's that preposition? <laughs> what <laughs>
2: Yeah, but he was seriously high when he wrote 80% of his music. So really, what do you right. I don't do? think Bruce gets high. Bruce, no. Bruce is a high on on music and earnestness. I don't think he touches anything. I don't think he's really ever really touched anything.
0: How does a story like that come about? Do you think, like, oh, it'd be interesting to sort of mock Chris Christie and... The no love from Bruce, and I'm gonna follow him around and watch him watch him dance. I, I want to. I, I, let me let me let me push back a little bit because my my
2: goal was not mockery in that. I mean, there are. It there actually are, didn't
0: come to be fair. It didn't come across that way. It
2: was actually it was a about it. Yeah, it, it, yeah. No, and my goal really, especially at the time, was just to. Um, I actually, here, it started from a very positive place. Like I said, I, you know, I I like interesting politicians. Most are very, very boring to be around. And Chris Christie, you know, is a three-dimensional character. You very seldom meet politicians, professional politicians, who have interests other than self-preservation and self-aggrandizement. Christie's love of music is actually very sincere, and he could talk knowledgeably about a lot of things. And I found that charming. I'd gotten to know him through this, that the other thing, whatever. And and I said, let's just write. I, I didn't realize the degree to which Bruce was actively toying with Christie's emotions through that long period. And, and so that became part of the story. But really, originally, it was it was just about this governor of New Jersey just, you know, uh, obsessing. I mean, he had gone to, I mean, many more shows than I've gone to. I don't know, how many have you gone to?
0: Probably 40, 40 to 50. He, he. I think you cited, went to a hundred something. This is back in 2012. A couple of hundred.
2: Yeah, a couple of hundred. I'm in the 70s or like 81 or something like that. I don't have Christie kind of I, money. I
0: don't have that kind of kind of bucks lying around. Yeah, well, you can get bad seats also. <laughs> That's um, true. The, That's mostly what um, I've gotten. <laughs> right. Now, now I'm the, actually um, making a couple of bucks and we have the pandemic. So I told yeah, my I know, family. It's a bummer
2: because. Front you know, row when I he really, comes back on tour. I would really like to go again. That is that is very true. So no, it wasn't it wasn't meant to it wasn't meant to mock. How many times have you
0: seen Bruce on Broadway?
2: Uh, just twice, twice. Uh, three times. Sir. Which is like yeah, really? Yeah, well, you claim to have no money and yet well,
0: one know, time it was I was a friend. Just little deals, little it a- deals. Yeah, I get it. I get it. <laughs> I'm allowed to accept gifts now
3: that I'm no longer. <laughs>
2: yeah, no, and that's the same. In the government, same thing for me. I once went with uh, John Batiste, you know, John, who is the Colbert, great musician in the Colbert. I went with John and we had really good seats uh, and, and John was sitting right behind me. And he was, John is an, an irrepressible guy and he like lives inside music. and You know, it's kind of, a it's this weird thing to even describe. But during the whole show, he would, John would be in my ear sort of, Singing along to Bruce on stage <laughs> and it was and playing the drums behind it was just it was just it was very it was a very enjoyable um disorienting experience and afterward we got we went to the dressing room and 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 spent a few minutes with um with Bruce and John started asking him highly technical and very interesting questions about how we recorded this song and that song and i I was just a fly on the wall, and it was sort of one of the great. Ten or fifteen minute stretches of my life just to like listen to Bruce talk about how he recorded different songs and John asking very technical questions. It was a joy. I, as you can imagine, it was a joy.
0: Yeah. No. Anything relating to Bruce is joy. I was once asked when I was being interviewed. You know, what is it about Bruce? And I quoted John Stewart, who I think put it best. And he's like, you know, why do I like Bruce? He like says, do you like joy? If you like if you like joy, then you should catch a Springsteen concert.
2: I, I, I know that I know that feeling. Yeah. What is that great John Stewart line? You know, that great John Stewart line about, you know, like when you listen to Bruce, you know, you realize that you're not a loser. You're part of an epic story about losers. Um, it was great. <laughs> I'm, I'm not delivering it well or, or accurately, but it's basically, it's like, you can aggrandize your own kind of patheticness by listening we, to Bruce. We've gone
0: from food show to E Street Radio. <laughs> now, we should, have you been on E Street Radio? No, but I, you know, that is a goal of mine. Me too. Maybe why, we can do it. Why go don't we both like co-host? Package. Why don't we do why don't we do it together? Yeah.
2: They could limit the damage by just having us both <laughs> at the same time and, and then just getting rid of it. Yeah. This is like an application. This is and like an instruct application my we're team making. right now. Oh, that, your team? Put, put, put oh. that
0: on the put that on the list. Okay. Well, They're not gonna say team is no,
2: being no to us, right? Yeah. Uh, quite possibly they will say no to us.
0: Okay, so this is the transition. With whom does Chris Christie have a more tortured relationship? Bruce Springsteen or Donald Trump? Bruce Springsteen, because he respects Bruce Springsteen. Oh, are you saying that he doesn't respect Donald Trump? Yes. Do you think he once respected him? And I mean, no, by respect- the way, I'm
2: speculating. Let me be careful here and journalistic and saying, I don't, I don't know that he disrespects Donald Trump. I assume, dangerous to assume, but I assume he disrespects Donald Trump for two reasons. One, he is smart and Donald Trump is not. And two, very few people who come into contact with Donald Trump respect Donald Trump so it's just a, it's a it's a numbers it's a numbers proposition
0: that opens up a whole can of worms then that we have been talking about for years in this country on my show in your magazine, and the Atlantic by the way, in many pieces, including a seminal piece by George Conway, and we had him on the show to talk about it at the time you know there's a lot of attention paid to the psychology of Donald Trump and of necessity the psychology of the people around Donald Trump. How do you explain the divide between? Your hypothesis that smart people don't respect Donald Trump, and how even now during the transition, and even up until and even since the voting of the electoral college earlier this week, there are all sorts of quote unquote smart Republicans who still act in a way that suggests not just respect but almost obsequiousness and devotion to Donald Trump. Can you explain that?
2: I I, I can't explain it. Uh, my colleague Ann Applebaum has tried to explain the nature of complicity, and her breakthrough, one of her many intellectual breakthroughs on this subject, is that complicity is the norm, bending to the will of the strongman is the norm in human behavior, and dissent is actually not the normal human response to a figure like Donald Trump. Um, I can't really explain it now. I mean, one of the most interesting experiments I think we could watch in the coming months is um, the retransformation of Lindsey Graham, perhaps. You know, remember that, you, you think know, he's going to swing Grant, back.
0: You think Lindsay's going to swing back to being, I normal? think there's a
2: reasonable, reasonable chance a, because, um, he's a shape shifter and B because he does have genuine affection for Joe Biden. C I guess you can say because he's, you know, a month or two in, into, um, into his, into a six year term, he's pretty safe politics changes and he'll change again before he's up, uh, and uh, he wants to be relevant. I mean, you know, I, I, Lindsey Graham's very smart. I know or knew Lindsey Graham pretty well, and uh, he's a pretty smart guy. And and I, he knows which way the wind is blowing. And and maybe um, he's not going to lead the charge away from Donald Trump. But if if things go a certain way in the coming months, then then maybe he will sort of do a moderate, limited kind of. Uh, pivot away from Trumpism. Uh I don't know. And maybe that's maybe that's kind of a vestigial on a personal level a vestigial hope that this was just cynical and not cultish. I don't know. But I I Does I that make it better? Uh, Does that yeah. make
0: it better? Mm,
2: maybe eight percent better in my mind. Eight uh, percent I'm I'm more scared of cults than I am of cynics. Maybe that's a way of putting it. I don't are know
0: are there any cults on the Democratic side?
2: Oh yeah. I mean, pol- you know, when when you make politics the center of your life, you run the risk of making politics and therefore politicians your gods. And I'm a fairly serious monotheist, and um, you know, there are things that I believe one should worship, and there are things like, that like one should not. Well, yeah, um, uh, very few humans <laughs> deserve that <laughs> level of worship. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, so so that 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 totalizing totalizing phenomenon, you know, where, where people, people, everybody, anyway, whatever, I'm not going to go down this, this rabbit hole of, of how everyone needs religion, whether they're religious or not. And some people make party their religion. Um, and some people make partisanship and individuals and politics, their religion. I mean, look what, look what Trump has done to evangelical Christianity, not all of evangelicals, obviously, but look what, or, or what evangelicals have done to themselves, um, with Trump as the as a kind of strange godhead, it's that's to me one of the most remarkable stories of the last four years. More I think remarkable we have our title. than Lindsey Graham. What's that? Strange godhead. Strange godhead. Make a note of that, guys. Yeah, <laughs> that's thus that's uh, yeah. Th- we that's do the title that on, of your we next. We can do book. this on Bruce Radio. No, we can do this on E Street Radio. That'll be exciting for the listeners.
0: It's part of it. Do progressives and conservatives look for different human qualities in their leaders, or are we all the same? It seems to me there has arisen some kind of divide about what the concept of strength is. I think you can postulate that people like, nobody likes a weak leader, right? No matter what, whether you're progressive, conservative, or independent. But the difference seems to be a little bit is what you perceive to be strength. Now, Donald Trump, and we're going to get into your other article in a moment, has a particular view of what it means to be strong, what it means to be a winner versus what it means to be a loser. And a little bit, we keep talking about Joe Biden as the empath, as the, as the embodiment of empathy, which is what the country wants, in part because it's a swing away from what Trump was, but that there are some people, Trump himself, perhaps, is he devoid of empathy or does he think empathy is a feature of weakness? Compound question. Answer any it's one like of those. It's an essay question.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, this is a podcast. I, I, we do I, I,
2: assume, I assume that Trump is a void. You know, this is why I, I, I have a hard time. I mean, obviously, we've published very strong anti-trump pieces we've published i think very true things about trump that trump wouldn't like um over the past 4 years not because we're partisan just because we are based in reality uh but i don't I, I can't get that angry at trump compared to the smarter people around him or the people who have more layers or more complexity or or show show signs of having an inner life i think there's just a void there i don't i don't i don't know what trump is I'm fascinated by this question. Uh, Tom Nichols wrote a great piece for us about, um, you know, the American, these kind of weird archetypes of American manhood or, or let me, not weird archetypes, the archetypes of American male behavior and how Trump doesn't conform to them. I interviewed Barack Obama a few weeks ago and and he brought this up and, and he really interesting stuff. He said about, you know, how he, he grew up. Understanding the you know the model of what American manhood looks like in the Gary Cooper, John Wayne, you know that kind of that kind of um, model—strong, silent, uncomplaining—you um, know he and he acknowledged all the you know sort of the patriarchal qualities and and, and, and etc. But he he's as flummoxed as 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 we are about why um, especially a type of American male who um, embraces the signifiers of that kind of manhood took to a horrible whiner and self-pitying softy, you know, um, and, and by the way, a bully, you know, I mean, the American, the archetype of American manhood is that Gary Cooper kind of stand with the people who are bullied, not with the bully and Donald Trump, if, not, if nothing else. He's a bully. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's, <laughs> I it, it's one of, like I said, we can make long lists of questions about, what just happened that go just beyond, you know, the, the politics of it and go deep American psychology.
0: What about these people who are not senators, but who worked for Donald Trump and allow themselves to be humiliated? Jeff Sessions comes to mind, allowed themselves to be abused. It seems to me that goes a little bit beyond, you know, the natural inclination to defer and to follow as opposed to dissent. Why do you think folks do that? Especially, especially people like Bill Barr, who went out of their way to be obsequious and to be flattering and to, you know, be sort of the, you know, the hatchet man for the president, knowing that it hasn't gone well for people before them because loyalty only runs in one direction. So I'll give you three answers. A, I don't know. B, you know that feeling, and we've
2: both done this, when you walk up the driveway of the West Wing, you know, you get through the gate, and you walk into the West Wing uh, lobby of the White House, and you're and you think to yourself, "I'm in the White House, like this is the center of the world," uh, and that's that has its seductions, right? And your Bill bar or your Sessions, and you've got a motorcade that drives you everywhere, and you're surrounded by armed men, and you feel very important. It could be those kind of sed- seductions. I mean, and see, you know. We have to take into account the kind of flight ninety three ism of some of these folks. They do believe that Trump is the flawed vehicle of American salvation that the America that they feel slipping from their grasp is going to be It's not the flight ninety three essay as much as it's the King David model King David, a flawed leader uh who nevertheless you know saved the people israel um and they see Trump as the flawed vehicle that's 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 you know protecting America from a wave of immigrants, for instance, so I mean there's some instrumental quality to it, but I go back to answer a, which is I don't know i because i I, I don't understand why people would go that far down the road in defense of someone who is obviously at least to me um an almost comically flawed human being
0: you no know, it's very strange to me that. In some ways, Donald Trump is a cartoonish figure. And there are explanations for why he does what he does. He's a void. He has no soul, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there are conclusions you can draw. And yet you and I and so many other people, when asked questions about why things have turned out a particular way and why people do a sort of, you know, genuflection to Trump, the, the honest answer comes back all the time. I don't know, right? You spent a lot of time with Barack Obama. Is there anything about which, you know, the way that the Obama wielded power or acted as president that is totally flummoxing to you in the same way that some of the stuff with Trump is flummoxing? Well,
2: not in the same way, but there's something, I mean, if you're, if you're trying to both be, you, you know, near, near power, but also create enough distance for you psychologically so that you can analyze it correctly. I mean, there's a lot of things that, uh, that are flummoxing about Obama, and particularly the way he led his presidency, for me, at least. I mean, the one of the reasons, I mean, one sure way to become a popular ex-president is to be followed by a dope, right? Um, and so Obama <laughs> Obama has benefited tremendously from from that. And also, I mean, you know, put aside politics, put aside the way he wielded or didn't wield power. Uh, he's an exemplary human being. Yeah, you know, he's, uh, I mean, he is... We talked about this in, I, in this interview that I did with him a few weeks ago. You know how how kind of small C conservative he is in so many ways. Um, he is a you know a, a, a family man and a, and a and a and a model of dignity and probity and and all the rest, right? So like he just looks he looks so good on a personal level compared to what what came right after him. I, I mean i I have you know I have my criticisms of Obama uh, policies and. You know, in particular, the way he sometimes um, was too fatalistic on the world stage about America's ability to actually do good things and about the way he sometimes didn't seem to fully grasp the relationship between diplomacy and and power. but I mean those are just those are those are policy issues or policy critiques I, I mean he was a he was a sane and smart president. It's just a different it's a different thing. Mm.
0: Hear more of our conversation in just a moment.
1: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance... Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
0: So do you think given how unique a figure Trump is, that Trumpism fades with him if he fades from the scene? Uh, Or can someone else who doesn't have his quality, someone else who is is more intelligent and has, you know, their sort of emotional wits about them. Is someone like that able to be Trumpist?
2: Yeah, Trumpism without Trump is probably more dangerous than Trumpism with Trump.
0: Right. I mean, uh, I mean that there's an argument for that. But then, then is it is it Trumpism? I mean, what is I guess what is Trump? What is Trumpism? What what is Trumpism? I mean,
2: Trumpism. You know, if you want to boil it down to its essence, is a kind of fear of the future, which you know, which which expresses itself in misogyny, in racism, and in, in xenophobia. Trumpism is as a philosophy is different than Trump's personal qualities. I mean, I, I, what I'm saying is, imagine a imagine a a politician who a had an attention span, b had the capacity to learn, um, c didn't go out of his way to um, insult. Racial minorities, ethnic minorities, women, and so on, and and B wasn't you know a person who is credibly accused of rape, just here, you know, just you know, just piling,
0: piling just, just of to the, tick off a few things.
2: Yeah, just to tick off. I mean, that's that's just this that's just scratching the surface of the list. Imagine someone with you know a a a more sane seeming. Private life um, with more discretion, probity, and again, attention span is hugely important. Because I mean, David Frum in, in the Atlantic has written a lot about this. That you know, that he would have been a much more successful autocrat had he actually been able to work the way a president works. I mean, imagine if imagine if he had just built infrastructure, right? Imagine if he had done something for the infrastructure, and imagine if he had decided to to fight the pandemic, he'd be president. Can,
0: can I challenge that from on the pandemic? I think you're correct. And he would have been reelected probably easily, oh, yeah, if he conducted himself better, because, you know, many leaders, including the governor of my state, uh, I think had a flawed response, but spoke well and was uh, was transparent with the public, and their rating numbers went up. But putting aside the pandemic, isn't some of the sort of robotic cult-like appeal of Donald Trump, his style and his and his being a bully and his brutality? And and the way he conducts himself at rallies, because it seems to me that what a lot of people love is this thing that you're trying to take away in when you describe the model of a future trumpist. They love his meanness. They love the fact that he triggers the liberals. And in other words, can there be a Trumpism? Can there be a trumpist? A nice Trumpism without the cult? <laughs> uh, I
2: look. I I, I think. I think you're right. I think some of the attraction of the things that some other people find unattractive, right? Uh, I, I mean, I remember this watching, you know, in 2016, you know, flipping on CNN and uh, seeing that Trump was about to speak and thinking to myself, even subconsciously, "All right, I'm going to watch this because it's going to be crazy," but you know, I don't want to <laughs> watch. You know, uh, you know that was the that was what everybody, you know, eventually belatedly understood that we we had been we had been trained for this kind of entertainment. Um, and reality TV and all the rest and professional wrestling and all the rest. Um, and yeah, and he appealed to baser instincts. People can be mean and people love meanness in a kind of way. And people love the, you know, the 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 jokey bullying. Um, I do think uh, the, a milk toast. there's no such thing as a milk toast Trumpist, I guess. But I do think like you can imagine, I don't want to name names, but I'll name one. Um, I can imagine a Tom Cotton saying things that simultaneously appeal to the resentments of the Trumpist base, but are done in a clever enough way that he could say, "You can't. Don't please don't accuse me of misogyny or racism. I'm just stating the truth here." I think there are ways to. Um, there's probably a modified, uh, and I use this word advisedly, dignified approach that that could work. I, I, but you, you're you're absolutely you're absolutely right. Um, this was. The show, and Trump. Yeah, we know this. I mean, we know this is the bitter last days. I mean, he's t- he's tweeting about Fox ratings today. All he cares about is television ratings and popularity and crowd size. He's extremely superficial, but he understands something about. Um, he doesn't understand bread, but he understands circuses. Put it that way.
0: <laughs> so, so what happens after January twentieth when he leaves office? Does he does he fade from the scene? Does he fade from the pages of the Atlantic and? you know, the evening primetime shows on CNN and Fox and other networks, or does he remain center stage in part because he's a potential candidate in 2024? Like, how are you going to deal with him?
2: Well, that's interesting. I mean, you deal with it as it comes, right? Um, yeah, I, I, I would hope that, I mean, one of my fondest dreams for next year is that we can go back to being a general interest magazine in many ways. (laughs) Um, but, um, Recipes but you can you can add recipes. We have, yeah, my Thai Thai fried, fried rice. rice. Yes, you beat me yeah, too. <laughs> the, the Thai fried rice dinner breakfast plan. The um,
0: microwave microwave yeah. for sixty seconds. <laughs> That's right.
2: Yeah. I gotta have to. I'm gonna add a little complexity to it though. Uh, I gotta sell it. The um, I I think. I mean, the short answer is I don't know. It's the future. I I, I don't know. I mean, if he maintains his, you know. Megaphone status. The, the issue is really not Trump. The issue, I mean, this has always been true. The issue is the 70 plus million people who voted for Trump. If they show signs of lack of interest, if they're moving on, if there's some level of regret, if senators and congressmen and governors show some independence, if something, if the dam breaks, then yeah, you, you, you know, he, he fades a little bit. But, you know, we're all walking a, a very fine line. You know, do we we don't want to make more of him than he is, but we also don't want to discount his salience in politics and culture going forward? I think that's the best way to answer. Yeah, it.
0: I mean, I was just wonder how long it takes for people to get tired of a simple act because it's not a complicated act. And you know, after four years, I know the people who are progressive are, are sick and tired of it and joke all the time. We had some candidates who were running. Uh, in the uh, lead up to the primaries on the show who who bragged that, that one of the best things about them was that they would be boring, and people could forget about who the president was, yeah for, michael, Bennett michael Bennett had that michael Bennett you yeah, don't even he, have to think about me. you said, said that uh, on multiple occasions, including on the podcast, so I wonder if part of it is that so I, I want to get to your the the other let me ask you this question first so you're the editor in chief of the Atlantic that's a big job okay yes it's not the biggest it's not the biggest it's a big job it's a big job okay, not a um, small job a lot doesn't allow you time to to cook a proper breakfast for yourself (laughs) that's true but you're also writing stuff yes so how do you have time to do both
2: i don't sleep very much anymore but that's probably just because of the state of the world uh does it
0: piss off some of your writers that you're both the editor and then you have you you break news in long pieces uh,
2: i don't know they wouldn't tell me um, I mean, maybe they're muttering I'll have about to ask it, them. And, and and no, they're maybe they're muttering about it in Slack channels. Some Slack channel I doesn't, <laughs> don't even know exists that you don't, um, that you, don't
0: you don't conduct surveillance of. I'm going to ask that George Packer what he, <laughs> what he thinks about oh, this.
2: George George Packer is not in Slack, believe me. George Packer barely has electricity.
0: He, he's, 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 <laughs> I, he's not, I believe that he's
2: not on Twitter. He's not on Twitter. He's he's he just writes great essays. That's George Packer. Do uh, you have
0: people who stand outside the offices of the New Yorker? to kidnap and snatch writers that you have your eye on. Like I can't confirm or deny. Hmm. No, we
2: have that's a wonderful magazine and it's Oh, okay. Say people. your say to, what you
0: need to say now. Re, I used get to your work index there. card. I love
2: it. <laughs> yes. Get your index card. That's right. I have my team of I have my, I have a team too, you know. You're not the only one with a team. David Remnick team can, can do you know nothing doing. to you. David Remnick is a is a dear friend and a mentor and a okay. wonderful Okay. You,
0: you say what you have to say. <laughs> but the, but there's a little there's a little bit of a, of a battle between the New Yorker and Atlantic Fair
2: that's healthy that's great
0: isn't a healthy great? competition I mean, it's capitalism
2: great. It's great to be no look that's not it's not even capitalism I mean
0: it is capitalism
2: okay fine but it's um I, I I want a healthy and David says this all the time too it's great to have competition because it creates a healthy eco we'd like we'd like the magazine industry to survive and it's great to have uh, people who are pushing you through their example forward so well, you, I, I you think guys it's, are the only ones. Great.
0: I mean, it's, you know, I've I've been thinking about this for a while.
2: There's some serious, there's some serious players uh, in this, in this area, I think.
0: I mean, it's interesting, right? Because you have, you have other media outlets that have grown up recent, in recent times, like Axios, which is basically, they publish haikus, right? (laughs) And then you have, I mean, you guys... I love lists, by the way. I love No, I'm a big, I'm a big list lover. And, you know, there was this trend for a time where people thought, well, less, less, less. and And then, you know, Twitter arrives on the scene. It's just a few characters at a time, but, but there's still an abiding interest on the part of something. And again, you don't have to have 300 million people by your magazine to be economically successful. And that's the thing I think people forget. There's a subset of folks who, by the way, listen to a long podcast with intelligent guests who don't speak, you know, in rhyme. There's also a subset of the population and, and all you need is a few million, right? Who believe in long form and want, and want in-depth reporting and want thoughtfulness, not just sort of the soundbite in the headline, Right. And does well, that my my true? belief is always, yeah, no, my belief. <clears throat>
2: my belief has always been that uh, if you make a, I mean, it's I'm saying this like it's my original belief and not like Steve Jobs or Richard plepler from HBO or something. But if you make a quality product, people will pay you for it. It's not that hard a formula to understand. And I think journalism lost its self-confidence over the last fifteen or twenty years, including even the New York Times, which, you know, belatedly, came to realize, oh, digital subscriptions actually will work for us. They will actually save us. Digital subscriptions are saving us too. We've had a great year.
0: But people get mad, right? There's still this expectation, which I think is fading a little bit, that, you know, journalism should be free. It should be ad-based. I mean, I, I get to, you know, we have this podcast that you're on. We have another podcast that um, that is behind a paywall. And part of the reason we do that other thing is because it supports this thing. Because because ad the, the ad-based business model, maybe a lot of readers and listeners don't appreciate this, is kind of terrible, particularly in the podcasting world, and particularly in the world of of print journalism, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's right in part because of the big platforms, Google and Facebook, eating up most of the advertising, and uh, in part because you're overly reliant on a small handful of companies. Any publication, uh, I'd rather I'd rather have the costs of making The Atlantic borne by a million separate people than. 10 or 15 companies. Uh, But reality is reality. And and reality is that the consumer is the way to go. And yeah, I mean, I hear this all the time. And we we do put things in front of our, we have a, you know, we have a meter, we don't really have a paywall, you can come to our site three or four times uh, a month without having to pay anything to see our stories. Uh, And we do put our coronavirus coverage in front of the paywall, because it's a public service uh, and an emergency. But yeah. I mean, people say this to me and, and, and then I, I say to them, you know, I, I have a payroll, like the people who are doing this work have to be paid so they can buy food. You, you know, I mean, it's like, no, uh, it's remarkable. There are I don't people, know why I have to explain this in a capitalist there are, I never <laughs> respond to
0: them. So I'm going to respond to them indirectly here. And I love, I love, we have the greatest listeners and the greatest followers, but, but there are some people, you know, they, <laughs> this is not free. It takes, it takes money to produce. People like the sound quality. Well, that takes, that takes money. This microphone cost, yeah. you know, $45 million. What is that? Yeah, that was, a, that was a $70 million microphone. $70 million microphone. I mean, you know. Made in DARPA. Made it in the bowels of the we got it. We got it through the military contracting process. Yeah. Um. Area
2: 51. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's the funniest thing because no one would ever walk into a car dealership and expect them to give you a car without any exchanging money for it. I I and it's just I mean I'm it's this is a public service. This is not a car, but it's also has it literally has to be supported. And uh you know the more support we get through subscriptions, the more uh journalism we're able to make. By the way, I I am sure you understand this in in intuitively, but our de facto chief marketing officer the past several months at least has been Donald Trump because when he started going after us um a lot of people rallied to the cause of great quality independent journalism, and you know that's also true for the Washington Post, the New York Times. The New York Times it's been it's been I mean, that's talk about a challenge for next year. It's not like Joe Biden is going to go on Twitter and call me a, a sleazeball or whatever Donald Trump called me. Uh, I, I would
0: like him to. I would actually help you know. it have been better yeah. if you had a book. Um, yeah, yeah exactly. it sends <laughs> your book straight to the top. But this right is other the other thing top. that's going on too. The Atlantic is owned by a very wealthy person, Lorraine Powell Jobs. The Washington Post is owned by, I think, the wealthiest person on earth, Jeff Bezos. I think he's one,
2: eight, oh, I, I just saw this yesterday, $185 billion.
0: Yeah, that's $185 billion more than you and me. That's a lot of Thai
2: fried rice. But that's you. a
0: lot, <laughs> and, it's, and it's about three microphones. I think three, three <laughs> exactly, at, microphones. Your, at your rate, yeah. <laughs> at my rate. Um, so we might need, you know, someone like that to bail us out. But, you know, you can get out your index card to answer this if you need to, but Um, which i imagine you might you might need to what does that say about journalism and some of these flagship i mean truly historically great i don't mean to be blowing smoke but the atlantic you know its roots go back you know it's like the republic you know the washington post has been around a long long and and some of the founders of the atlantic and you can brag about this in your index card answer if you'd like (laughs) mention some of the names of the people who were there at the founding of the atlantic in your answer... Well, Ralph Waldo
2: Emerson was our Ralph first Waldo subscription Emerson. manager.
0: Ralph Waldo <laughs> Emerson. Yeah. I know that dude. That he's, yeah. he's a big deal, that guy. You've um, had him on the show. I've had him know. on the show. Yeah. I quote uh, yeah. from him. Some, I know, he said his name was Ralph Waldo. No, maybe it's just Waldo. Well, it was, where's Waldo? Yeah. Different guy. But, but what does it say about the state of journalism? And what does it say about the um, independence of journalism when you have multiple flagship outlets like you and the Washington Post and others that are that are kind of I don't want to say propped up, but that's a verb I think you can use, by sort of a bottomless pit of funds if necessary.
2: Well, A, it's not a bottomless pit, pit of fun, because just like Jeff Bezos, I think Lorraine Powell Jobs has been very clear about this. Um, this is in the for-profit side of Emerson Collective, which is her you know, the organization that she founded. Um, and there's an expectation on the part of Emerson that we're a for-profit business that will pay for itself and make a profit. I actually view them... I mean, I think I think people like... This is not an index card. This is actually how I feel. I really feel like Jeff Bezos and Lorene Powell Jobs, just to name two people, there's many others, um, are serving, doing a public service, A, um, and and doing it by being a bridge to... Uh, a stable, independent future. Yeah, the, the, the disruptions of technology and the decline of the ad market and everything have put a lot of publications in pretty dangerous positions, right? Um, they've come in to be bridges to um, and, and helpers toward a, a future in which we can be truly financially independent and growing based on our direct relationship with millions of our readers. And um, so this is a great, it's a great gift to have her uh, standing with the Atlantic um, and being committed, you know, in a generational kind of way to the Atlantic. But I mean, as much as she doesn't want the at Atlantic to be a nonprofit, you know, organization supported through other people's largesse, I don't want it either. I, I like, I, I really believe that what we make here and what other quality publications make is worth paying for, and I think that our readers should. Take out subscriptions so that so that we are supported independent of 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 anybody else's kindness or charity or selflessness or however you want to call it but but if we don't get across this bridge, that's the danger because you don't want to have to rely on other people forever to 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 float the boat and so and so i, I that's that's the way I think of it, and I think that's I don't want to speak for her, but I think that's the way she thinks of it and i and I know that she has that same confidence that I have that. Um, if you make something that's special and you make something that's quality and then it won't be impossible to convince large numbers of people. And we're we're finding out that it's not impossible to convince large numbers of people to, to pay you for access to the, to the, to the stories that you're making. Yeah. Because a lot of what's out there is junk. A lot of, well, you know, we're, we're in an interesting, I mean, I know this is not like, uh, on the media, uh, but, or anything, but we're in an interesting phase where, um, three or four or five, six years ago, there were a lot of, uh, I think the, the the cliche is digital upstarts, right? Um, and they were going to lap the quote unquote legacy media, right? And the New York Times was in trouble. Remember, it was taking loans from Carlos Slim and, and everybody upstarts, was having- Upstarts like BuzzFeed. Yeah, uh, you know, the whole, the whole range of, I mean, by the way, Great people, great stories, et cetera. But but there was the assumption that they were the future, and that the legacy publications like the Atlantic, New York Times, so on, were were the past. But it's been a little bit of a tortoise and a hare kind of situation where some of those kinds of places, some of them are not even in business anymore. Some of them are having difficulties. And you know uh, these aren't these are not trade secrets. We've talked about this in the last month. I mean, since we launched our digital paywall. Um, 14 months ago, 15 months ago, we've signed up more than 400,000 new subscribers paying, you know, a, a, on average, $50 for a subscription. Um, so we're kind of like the the, the the tortoise that just every month, we're just, you know, collecting new subscribers and and doing our work. And, and we're not a tortoise in terms of the impact of the work, or the reach of the work. But as a business proposition, you know, all we're all we're doing is just accumulating subscribers and trying to you know, give them good journalism and everybody else is uh, looking for other formulas. So I, I, feel, I feel good about where, you know, places like the New Yorker are, the Washington Post, the New York Times, where the Atlantic is. I feel, I feel pretty good about where they all are.
0: Speaking of great journalism, you know, try once again to get to your article in mm. which you wrote-
2: I gave you the entree before, but uh, you didn't you did. You didn't you did but the then door. I,
0: you know, I'm, I'm, I ramble sometimes, meander. Away. No, no,
2: no, no, no. And then I wanted to give you my theories of uh, journalism.
0: Which I, which I enjoyed very much. Um, I'm glad. So you wrote this article in which you have um, people saying that, that Donald Trump referred to Americans who died in war, who died in battle, as suckers and losers. And, and my first question is, when your source, John Kelly, said these things to you, what did oh, you- Oh, stop it. What, what did you- What, you didn't like What how is that? that? One of your?
2: Oh, is that one of your prosecutor tricks? No, what
0: was no, no, you couldn't get away with that in, in court. Yeah, um, yeah. You won't say who your source was, obviously. Well, why would I ever say who my sources are? Well, because it's just us. It's just you and me in <laughs> okay. our home,
2: and I and I'm Mrs. Gingrich, right?
0: But I guess, I guess my my first question is before we analyze. I don't want to do yeah, too much because yeah, we yeah. we talked about Trump's psychology a lot already. Yeah, yeah. But but when when one or more people were telling you about this language used by the president, what was your reaction? Non surprise.
2: Yeah. Um, and there were several people, and obviously this was he was accumulating. Data over time, but look, I, I I recognize a break point in my own uh, understanding of Trumpism and American politics. I, I date it exactly to the moment when Donald Trump uh, said of oh, John McCain, "I like people who aren't captured." And my you know Washington brain, you know establishment thinking brain said, "Well, that's it for Trump. That's what everybody thought." You know, I mean, I, you know, that's it. Uh, you don't survive that. And then he gets more popular. And I'm like, well, I obviously don't understand something about American politics. Um, so, but from that moment, and I, and I, you know, I was so deep. I mean, I I admired John McCain. I knew him, I don't say fairly well, but I knew him well enough. And that, that, that appalling inversion of what, you know, being an American is, you know, the selflessness and sacrifice that the POWs in Vietnam represented, that I... I I couldn't even understand. I couldn't even understand the level of perversity. And then, you know, so so in other words, nothing from that point on really has truly surprised me. I'm sure I've expressed, you know, oh, I can't believe he just said that or I can't believe he just did that. But nothing is really surprising. And, you know, the suckers and losers, those two quotes um are not the most surprising thing in 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 that piece. It's this it's it, it to me, it was his demand to exclude wounded veterans or amputees from military parades because, quote, nobody wants to see that. I mean, that is, I, I, okay, if if I'm going to, if I'm going to acknowledge being surprised by something, I'll acknowledge being surprised by that because that is an actual anti-human response to an observable human reality. I just don't, I I can't get my mind around someone who would say something like that or feel it.
0: Do you think there are a lot of people who who feel that way and they just keep it to themselves and some of those people are attracted to Trump or they just sort of think he's the crazy guy who triggers the libs and triggers the, and triggers the traditional republicans and and so they don't care.
2: I think it's the more more the latter than the former. It's like it's like watching, you know, it's like watching professional wrestling. You know in the back of your mind that those guys aren't really like that. And so you don't expect to, you know, they don't expect that they're taking it seriously, but I don't know. I I don't know. We don't know what goes on in the secret, we don't know the secret thoughts of people who voted for, for Trump. I think a lot of it is just resentment based. And, and, you know, of course we all play our role. The more we go, Oh my God, how can you say that about a great war hero like John McCain, you know, and seeing people in the quote, mainstream media uh, or establishment figures, whoever get upset about it. Well, that, make some people happy just seeing them upset but anyway it's just all it's just all perverse to me just all perverse
0: so when you're writing that and you know that it's going to upset the president and i didn't know the quite the
2: quite i didn't know quite the level
0: of so it i want to ask you as you know not as a reporter but just as a person and i've asked a lot of people this question because a lot of people have been you know targeted and bullied by the president in tweets and otherwise like what's that like and you know re- remind people what he said and what what was that like for you in your personal life? You know, is it did you deal with it as well as you expected? Yeah, I mean, I mean,
2: I, I think I could say this now. I mean, we had some security problems that I had to deal with, uh, obviously, um, because of that. When that when the president and his allies are all attacking you in you know gross personal terms, it triggers some people to you know take him literally, <laughs> not figuratively, or whatever that expression is. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of you know, I'm. I'm. You know, I've. 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 Um, been in this business for a long time. I've been called every name you could be called. That stuff doesn't bother me. And in fact, it's sort of. Um, it's gratifying to be called. Uh, uh a sleaze ball or a slime bag. I can't remember the t- slime bag, sleaze ball, scumbag. It was a sort of all these different combinations. A lot of alliteration
0: there. Yeah, there. yeah.
2: There was. Um, it wasn't that creative, honestly. Tweet <laughs> after tweet after tweet. Um. You, you know, it's it's sort of like um, you, you know the cliche of uh, you know I'm gl- I'll be glad to be judged by that enemy. You know, uh, if you want to hold me, you know, if that if that person doesn't like me, then okay. I mean, the funniest the funniest bit, and this obviously helped um, inadvertently uh, from Trump's perspective, I guess, uh, generate a lot of reader support. At one press conference, he in the course of three, two or three paragraphs. He referred to the Atlantic as a second rate magazine, a third rate magazine, a failing magazine, and a magazine that is about to close and <laughs> you know and i i told i you know i sent i I told our staff, I said, well, you know that's escalating quickly, you know <laughs> right,
0: right, right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, in the course like, in the course of the same yeah. message,
2: yeah, the course of the same message, we had gone from second rate to actual like on life support, so I mean some of it was highly amusing, some of it is highly not amusing. But um, it's just the price you pay. And other people, you know, other people, you know, were targeted in, in this as well. But, um, you know, and I also took it, I'm just trying to an- analyze, I was trying to analyze it at the time. And I and I realized that, you know, he understood the potential damage that that could cause to his support among veterans and among people in the military. You know, he, did, he, did, he didn't get quite as exercised when somebody accused him of being anti-Mexican. That was something that was on brand. Uh, but I think he understood that this kind of thing is not on brand, although I think it is really core to to who he is. I mean, he doesn't uh, I mean, it, the root of all this is that he does not understand service. He can't comprehend selflessness,
0: yeah, i mean to, to to me, the most the craziest thing about the reporting is is a little bit um you know side by side to the fact that he called them suckers and losers. It's the explanation behind it. You know why did he call them that? And as you're saying just now, he doesn't get it. Like, he 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 literally, as an intellectual matter, I don't know if this makes it better or worse, he can't understand why anybody would do something that would put themselves in harm's way for the country, even though he claims to be the person who cares about the strength of the country. It, it makes it better in the sense that he's not capable of, this is,
2: he's not capable of understanding. It's sort of like getting mad at a carnivore for being a carnivore. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, get, getting—I don't want to do too much, you know, metaphorical heavy lifting here, but you know, it's like he is what he is. Like it, it is. I mean, and you referred to George Conway's great article for us a while back. Um, you know, there's good material in that on on this subject, but he just is what he is. Like that's that's his. He he can only understand the world through the prism of uh, extreme self-interest and and almost physical self-interest in a kind of way. I'm not even just talking about the sex side or the, you know, the women and the harassment and all the rest. I, I mean, why would you physically put yourself in danger if you don't
0: have to? Right, if you can manufacture a bone spur, like why would you do that? Manu- yeah, yeah, pretty bad bone spur. Yeah. So I, w- I, wanna, I don't have a great segue, but I want to pivot to something else because you write a lot about the Middle East and spend some time in the Middle East. Are you surprised that all the issues of, of peace and aggression... In the Middle East were not solved by Jared Kushner, even though he read all those books. Well, at first he wasn't going to read the books, but then he decided to read the books. Look, I
2: I'll say two things uh, on that. Um, one is, and I'm, I'm being I'm being fair here because I did say this. Early. I said, you know, the great geniuses of American diplomacy did not solve the Middle East problem problems um, over the course of the last 30, 40 years. So I wasn't like, automatically disparaging of Jared Kushner's attempt. And I and I tried to understand this through a kind of Middle East prism. You, you know, I remember, you know, Ariel Sharon used to send his son on very, very delicate um diplomatic missions to Arab countries and Arab groups. And because in the Middle East context, Sharon understood this, his interlocutors understood this, like sending a family member means that this is important to you. And so there there was a logic to having Jared Kushner uh, involved in it. Probably listening to more people would have been smarter. And I will say this: he's not the key figure in the rapprochement between Israel and uh, various Arab states. Um, he's a facilitator of it. They had their own rationale for doing it. The, you know, the Emiratis in particular, the ambassador here in Washington, Yusuf Al ataiba and the, the leader of the Emirates, Mohammed bin Zayed, were were key in in making that happen. But you know, it did happen, and I, it doesn't. It's not peace. It doesn't solve the Middle East uh, problems, but even the Democrats have to recognize. Even the those Democrats are, advancements. are recognizing. You, you agree that those are advancements, and yeah, and, yeah, absolutely. That's what and I'm Trump saying. get it's some like, credit. Yeah. Even even Biden is saying, okay, it's better for these countries to have relations and not have relations. There's nothing else you could say to it. I, I think what you're going to see is is the is the Trump people trying to take more credit for that than um, than they should. A lot of it happened, by the way, because a lot of Arab leaders were seen as too close to Trump. And when they realized that Biden would probably be the next president, they thought, we're going to have to make a gesture that 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 we have to do something significant here that um, makes us welcome in a Democratic White House. Um, and people aren't picking up that aspect of it. But it's a separate big subject.
0: I'm going to ask you a smaller question about Israel. Was Donald Trump wrong to move the embassy to Jerusalem? Well,
2: here's another thing that's so interesting to me. I mean... Uh, my personal view is that, um, is that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. It is obviously the Jewish capital. Um, it also, I hope, one day will be the capital of Palestine. Uh, you know, that's, these are, non. I hope, non-controversial assertions or, or beliefs. It is true that people predicted that the world would explode if he did it, and the world didn't explode. People thought that the world would explode when he assassinated or had um, Soleimani, Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian intelligence chief, uh, assassinated, and the world has not yet exploded because of that. Um, there's something about his brute understanding of power, politics, that that may be working in, in a Middle East context that we don't, or some people don't fully grasp. I'm not saying that there was any strategy or thought or care given to these things. Um, they were impulses rather than, and strategy. But, you know, the, the experts were wrong when they said that everything was going to fall apart. And, you know, he ends his term, you know, with Morocco and Israel opening up diplomatic relations after Sudan and Bahrain and the UAE. And, you know, so, um, so you can't argue that he's had an unsuccessful, that this administration has had a notably unsuccessful time I- in the Middle East, to be fair.
0: What do you think Biden does with the U.S. embassy? Does it remain Oh you can no you can't you move it back move right
2: it. yeah you can't move it back
0: um, it's done it's done
2: yeah. it it's done it's it's a, it's a done thing and that everybody understands that no that would be that would be um that would be a destabilizing move at this point especially for especially for an administration that i think they learned from the obama administration it's like don't spend a lot of time on the israel palestine issue. It's not even the most important war in the Middle East, much much less the most important foreign policy issue in the world. And all it does is create problems for you. So you, you, you manage, you just manage it and you don't make waves. And I don't think you're going to see a tremendous amount of uh, bold diplomacy going on on the part. There's enough
0: to do for the Biden administration. Jeff Goldberg, thanks again for being with us. So long overdue. Thanks for having me. this question comes in a voicemail from Daniel, and it's a very thoughtful question. And I thought I would end the show sort of with a reflection on what Daniel asks.
3: Hey, Preet, this is Daniel from Hastings, Nebraska. I uh, wanted to ask a follow up question from a uh, question that you posed to Leon Panetta on your very first ever episode of this podcast over three years ago. You asked him to predict what the country looks like at the end of President Trump's first term. My question is this. We're now at the end of not just his first term, but of the Trump presidency. And I'd like to know whether you think the basic institutions of our democracy have been undermined, or if those checks and balances, Congress, courts, or the courage of the American people, have prevented it. Regardless, I must say, I'm pleased to see that your podcast has remained resilient in the same time. Thank you. Merry Christmas.
0: And so as 2020 comes to an end, and a new president is set to be inaugurated on January 20th of next year, I think it's a good moment to reflect back on what Leon Panetta said and see how accurate he was over three years ago back in 2017. Here's what the former Secretary of Defense and former CIA director said back then. Final question. What do you think America looks like at the end of President Trump's first term?
3: You know, I want to believe uh, this country is stronger than any one president. And that uh, our forefathers were very smart in creating a system of checks and balances. You know, I think that what I sense now is that, you know, that system of checks and balances, whether it's the Congress or whether it's the courts or whether it's just people in the country who are uh, resisting, uh, you know, uh, certain things that are happening. I think that tells me that, you know, we're going to be able to get through this without— undermining the basic institutions of our democracy. I want to believe that. And, and I guess the reason I want to believe that is because this country for over 200 years has faced all kinds of crises, whether it was recessions or depressions or world wars or a civil war or natural disasters. And somehow we've always risen to the occasion because I think, I think the real strength of this country isn't here in Washington. I think it's in the spirit and resilience and courage and moral faith of the American people.
0: And so what do I think of all of this? I think it will take some thought and it will take some study. And it's not clear how much damage there has been. But if you look at each of the sort of important institutions of American democracy, you can give them varying grades. I think you can give Congress a pretty poor grade. I think that the founding fathers expected there to be an overreaching president from time to time, but they didn't expect there to be a supine Congress, even among members of the president's own party. That when norms were transgressed, and bad faith decisions were made and divisiveness was, you know, a political weapon as opposed to unity, that members of Congress, as an independent, equal branch of government, co-equal branch of government, would do something about it. It doesn't necessarily mean voting to convict on impeachment, which didn't happen. It doesn't necessarily mean figuring out a way to invoke the 25th Amendment, but it does mean standing up to a bully from time to time, especially when you know that lots of the things that Donald Trump did, Republican senators didn't like, And lots of Republican members of the House didn't like, but they didn't do much about it. So I think overall, and we'll get into more of this in the coming weeks when we do kind of a postmortem on the Trump presidency, Congress was kind of a failure. And that's not been a great institution. It's only as good as the members who were part of it. I think most troublingly, we've been talking about over the last week, you have a totally frivolous, anti-democratic, un-American lawsuit to overturn the election. And what did the co-equal branch of government do? At least one chamber of that co-equal branch, the House of Representatives, 126 Republican congressmen signed on to a ridiculous amicus brief that even an overwhelmingly conservative court, a third of which was appointed by Trump himself, thought was nonsense and wouldn't permit it to proceed. So that's Congress. So I think maybe Panetta was a little bit overly optimistic about Congress, but I think he was right about the courts. We've seen in multiple cases relating to travel bans and other issues that have been pushed forward by the Trump administration that the founders were pretty smart in making sure that the federal judiciary at least was insulated by politics, by making sure that they have life tenure. Now there is some debate in recent times and in some quarters about life tenure for Supreme Court justices because that court is so important. And because of the happenstance and vagaries of when people retire or pass away, there's an imbalance over time. And I I think there is an argument, it's a little bit radical, but there is an argument that maybe there should be staggered terms for, for Supreme Court justices with long periods for their tenure so that you would still have a substantial amount of political independence. But with respect to the rest of the judiciary, the fact that judges, whether appointed by a Democratic president or a Republican president, know that they will keep their jobs no matter what their ruling is, whether it pisses off the president or not, I think has gone a long way to make sure that the excesses of this administration are dealt with on the basis of law and principle and precedent, and not because they owe some duty of loyalty or they owe their job going forward to that particular president. And taking the transition period, again, as an example of that conclusion, I think it shows the resilience of our court system. That Donald Trump and his allies, when they brought silly, ridiculous, frivolous lawsuits in case after case, particularly in the federal courts, whether the judges on the panel were appointed by Trump or someone else on the basis of law and precedent, they struck those down and didn't feel they had to reach some particular outcome because that's what Dear Leader wanted. There's another institution called The Fourth Estate, which I think also bears mentioning. And that's a free and open press, which I think also deserves some credit for keeping us mostly on course over the last four years, whether they were reporting on border separations or on other issues with respect to this administration, notwithstanding being called the enemy of the people, notwithstanding threats made by the president and by his allies and humiliation and mockery and abuse, they did their job. And I think some institutions, and including The Atlantic, uh, about which we had a nice discussion today, but also the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the cable networks have done a very good job of making sure that truth gets known and bad things get exposed and democracy continues to be resilient. Over the course of the last few years, there have been hopes that we would be saved, right? We'd be saved by something or someone. And in that vein, people have you know, cast their eyes towards, in the past, Robert Mueller, the special counsel. Would he save us? Would he be the savior? Or the 25th Amendment, would that be our savior? Or would there be someone within the administration, someone within the White House, who would do his duty or her duty and call out the excesses of the president and be a whistleblower of a sort that we need? And it turns out at the end of the day, there's no individual savior, it doesn't work that way. Not the special counsel, not the 25th amendment. What saved our democracy and what is saving it going forward is the 80 million people who voted in 2020 and the tens of millions of people who voted in 2018. And so when we have this discussion about what saves democracy and how the institutions work, you can do an analysis of the executive branch, the legislative branch, the judicial branch, and that's all well and good. And that's important for the reasons I discussed and for many other reasons as well. But at the end of the day, it is the collective power of voting that people have in this country, notwithstanding obstacles to that voting, notwithstanding attempts to suppress that voting, but the collective power of the vote in this country that keeps democracy on track. It's the collective power of protest on the part of people in this country that caused the administration to backtrack on its border child separation policy, for example. So I think the prognosis for American democracy is strong. I'm not sure I would say that if Donald Trump had won a second term, but the reason he didn't is not necessarily because of the courts or the press or the Congress, but because a substantial majority of people in this country decided that they cared enough to get out of their homes and go vote, even in the midst of a pandemic, so Daniel, when you ask the question, whether checks and balances, Congress, courts, or the courage of the American people have prevented it, I go with the courage of the American people. So congratulations. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Jeffrey Goldberg. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattershor. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam ozer Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Calvin Lord, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Maley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.